Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with the author of a new biography that's getting good reviews. The book tells the story of the first woman in America to receive a medical degree and her sister, who also became a doctor. Women could do anything that men did. It was just a matter of talent and toil, not gender. Um, and Elizabeth saw herself as someone who could embody this idea, find a way to prove that women could do anything men could do. And medicine turned out to be the path she chose. And two current medical students will compare what medical school was like in the 1800s with what it's like today. If I could speak to her today, I would definitely thank her. If it wasn't for people like her and all the difficulties she went through, but still persisted, I don't think we would be here today. And if we were, we would definitely face more challenges than we do now. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, two medical students talk about what school is like now as we mark the 200th birthday of one of Upstate's most famous graduates. But first, the author of a new biography about Elizabeth Blackwell and her sister, Emily, discusses these pioneering medical women. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman in America to receive a medical degree, and as Upstate marks the 200th birthday of one of its most famous graduates, I'm speaking with the author of a new book about her. Janice Namura has written The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Ms. Namura. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your books made the New York Times list of 13 books to watch for in January, and it's one of Apple's most anticipated books of winter 2021. And I think most people who live in Syracuse have heard of Elizabeth Blackwell. There's a street on the Upstate campus that's named after her, but I don't know how many of us were aware that she had a sister who also became a doctor. Did you know that before you began your research? Yeah, oddly enough, when I first encountered the Blackwells, and I encountered them really late, uh, I had never heard of them until I was an adult, um, I actually met Emily first. Um, I was poking around in the stories of women who followed careers and turned their backs on marriage and family, and she popped up uh, sort of through the lens of queer history um, as someone who had had a career and had a partner, a female partner who was also a doctor in the last decades of her life. Uh, and that intrigued me. So following where Emily Blackwell leads, you get very quickly to Elizabeth Blackwell. Um, and I was interested in the fact that no one at all had ever heard of Emily. So um, when I set out to do this project, I really set out with the mission to reintroduce this as a story of two sisters and not just the first woman to get a medical degree. So what got you thinking about doing a book about them to begin with? Or how did how did that all kind of come together for you? Well, um, you know, when you write narrative nonfiction and you do all of the research and the travel and um, all of the kind of uh, weaving together of narrative threads that it takes to, to tell a story like this, you really, it needs to resonate with some part of your own identity. You need to be sort of in love with the material in order to put that much energy into, into a project like this that takes years. Um, medicine was sort of the path not taken for me. Um, I, I got to college intending to study medicine and swerved to English. And I had already written a book about trailblazing women in the 19th century, and I liked it in the 19th century. So when I went looking for a new project, um, the idea of circling back to my original interest in medicine via the lives of these pioneering women doctors was really attractive. So you had sort of a personal interest in medicine to begin with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in the way that time is cyclical, my uh, daughter, who is now making her way through college, uh, has a strong intention of pursuing medicine herself. So it felt very much like a full circle uh, and an opportunity to kind of um, explore a piece of me that hadn't the path not taken and also kind of join my own daughter in her new endeavors and, and, and projects. 
Well, what can you tell us about these sisters? Can can we start with their upbringing? Sure. So the Blackwells, uh, Elizabeth and Emily, were two of nine siblings. Um, they were mostly born in Bristol, England, and came to this country as children. Uh, they were the children of a, a man who was a sugar refiner and an abolitionist, which is sort of a paradox if you think about that for a second. Um, his life's goal was to find a way to make sugar without enslaved labor. So he moved his family from England all the way to America and then all the way out to Cincinnati, which in 1838 was a frontier town, um, trying to make sugar out of sugar beets. And then as soon as he got there, he died, uh, broke, and left his large family um, uh, sort of struggling to make a living and left his five daughters with a clear message that having a husband was no guarantee of security. Um, as much as they loved him, he hadn't really provided for them. So none of the five Blackwell sisters ever married. Um, and two of the Blackwell sons married two of the most prominent feminists of the day, Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown. So it was an interesting, iconoclastic family. Um, Elizabeth really became interested as a young person in the writings of Margaret Fuller, uh, sort of the transcendentalist editor and writer who had written a bestseller called Woman in the 19th Century. And her point was really that women could do anything that men did. Uh, it was just a matter of talent and toil, not gender. Um, and Elizabeth really had a healthy self-esteem and saw herself as someone who could embody this idea. Um, find a way to prove that women could do anything men could do. And medicine turned out to be the path she chose um, as, a, as a sort of a graphic way of making this point. So getting back to nine siblings, did they all get along? Were they especially close? Do you have any uh, knowledge of how, th yeah. how they functioned? They, they were. They were they were a tribe. Uh, and their closeness was actually a great gift to me as a biographer. Um, the nine of them... Um, really functioned as a unit. They had been displaced and uprooted a few times from Bristol to New York to Cincinnati and then and then orphaned. Um, so they, they really looked to each other more than anyone else in the world. At the same time, they all sort of drove each other a little nuts. So they were constantly leaving each other behind and writing to each other. So when I came to the project and started to look into what kind of archival material there was, there were thousands of letters, um, all of them writing to each other about everything that happened to any of them, um, which is a great gift because it gives you not just a lot of material to work with, but a lot of perspectives on the same events. Um, so at, at times I felt like I was drowning in material, but as people who do this kind of research will tell you, if you're not drowning, you might not have enough. <laughs> so right, right. So the, what was their socioeconomic class? Um, it, it, before he died, before their father died, they were doing pretty well? They were, although in a precarious way. Um, their father was uh, an idealistic capitalist. <laughs> and oh. his, um, his fortunes fluctuated a lot. There were good years and bad years. And sugar is a, a sort of a fickle industry anyway. Um, sugar refineries have a bad tendency to blow up, and his did a couple of times. Um, so they they were definitely um, in the intellectual class, the educated upper middle class. But in terms of how much actual cash they had, that was, that was precarious. So um, they... Uh, identified as um, genteel. At the same time, um, they identified, not identified, but, but sympathized, I think, with less fortunate people. They also came from a background in England uh, of being dissenters, dissenters from the Church of England, um, iconoclasts in the way they um, thought about the way society should work. So um, I, I guess in today's terms, you would call them liberals, progressives. Um, people who uh, thought about improving the world. Um, so all of that is a, is a complicated way of saying um, their attitudes didn't always match their finances. So what was the education like for all of the children? Is this the time of one-room schoolhouses, or how did they educate themselves? Well, interestingly, for a family of this time, the, the girls and the boys in the Blackwell family received the same level of education. Um, from a kind of a patchwork of schools, tutors, um, each other, uh, their parents, their parents' friends. Um, it was, it, there, there was not a, a kind of a, 
organized kindergarten through 12th grade kind of um, education for them. But books were, um, you know, part of the, the you know, a, a pillar of the Blackwell domestic life. Um, and they all read avidly and read to each other and discussed and often met the authors of the things they were interested in. So um, education and intellectual pursuit was of paramount importance. I don't think any of them spent all that much time sitting in classrooms. Um, the boys more than the girls, but the girls also had governesses sometimes, tutors sometimes, depending on how the family was doing. Um, a patchwork education, but but a, 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 a very passionate one. Wow. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm speaking with Janice Nimura. She's the author of the book, The Doctor's Blackwell, about the first woman doctor in America who graduated from Geneva Medical College, which is now known as Upstate Medical University, and her sister, who was also a physician. So some of the reviews of your book describe the sisters as eccentric. So I wanted to know what about them is eccentric and wh whether they were considered eccentric in their day. Well, in their day, any woman who uh, stated a choice to study medicine, i.e. study the intimate processes of the body while sitting in a room among men was profoundly eccentric, outrageous, appalling, you know, freakish. Um, so by, by the standards of the day, their, their, their mission itself made them deeply eccentric. Um, on top of that, I think, as I, as I mentioned, the Blackwells were sort of clannish. They, they had a very high opinion of their own intellectual strengths. And, um, you know, I, any woman who spent more time reading than raising a family was also considered eccentric by the mainstream. Um, within their own circles, um, you know, the transcendentalists, uh, various progressive schools of thought, the, the abolitionists, um, they weren't necessarily considered eccentric, more just um, extremely idealistic, I guess I would say. But to the average person, the very idea of a woman choosing to study medicine was uh, unspeakably strange. <laughs> so they, they might have been more uh, accepted if they'd been nurses or midwives or something. I mean, women did some medical stuff, right? Definitely. I, you know, this was a moment in history where the where the, the, the field of medicine was in flux, both scientifically and institutionally. Right. Women, of course, had always been healers. They'd always been midwives. Um, but but those healing arts were more of a trade. And in terms of a class thing, if you were of the genteel class, that wasn't something that you would get involved in. There was a class aspect to this. Um, the Blackwells really or Elizabeth to start, um, you know, to her, a nurse was a working class person. She was not a working class person. So if she was going to be this, this beacon of, of female independence, it was going to be as a doctor, not as a nurse. A nurse was accepted as if you were a woman, you could be a nurse. That was sort of a, a, a working woman's thing to do. Um, she wasn't really interested in proving that. She was interested in, in um, taking a place in a man's world. As upper middle class people, working at all was a little bit out of the norm. Um, so anything they did other than find husbands and settle down would have been considered unusual. Um, what was their birth order? Were they the, was Elizabeth or Emily, were they the firstborn? So there were two older sisters before Elizabeth. Uh, and then Emily was the next sister after Elizabeth. Um, okay. Five and then they had younger brothers. And they had younger brothers, exactly. Okay. So did you get a sense of why, besides wanting to sort of move into the man's world, did they have a passion for medicine or for the body or learning about it? Why did they really want to become doctors? Well, interestingly, starting with Elizabeth, Elizabeth chose medicine not because she was interested in science, the body, healing, caring for people. I mean, I think in many ways, the opposite was true. She thought being sick was a sign of weakness. She thought most bodily functions were fairly disgusting. Um, but medicine was an unusually clear way of proving this point because um, increasingly the way you became a doctor by the 1840s was that you went to a medical school, um, took classes, sat for examinations, passed them, and received a diploma. Um, you know, medicine 
hitherto had been, especially in America, had been more a question of apprenticeship, following the village doctor around, learning to do what he did. Um, now, with the emergence of medical schools in America, there was this um, this move toward medicine as a profession for men um, that came with a diploma. And so it occurred to her that if she could find her way into one of these medical schools and study, she knew she had the, the intellectual power to, to, to be successful as a medical student. If she could get in there, study, pass the examinations, who could say that she wasn't a doctor as qualified as any man? So it seemed like a very graphic, clear way of proving this point um, about what a woman could do. Um, and so she went into it with that in mind to prove this point, not necessarily to be a healer or because she was passionate about biology. And as for Emily, I think Elizabeth realizing that being a woman doctor was going to be a lonely path, uh, looked around, decided she really would like a companion on this path, um, really thought more highly of her own family than anyone else and recognized Emily as the most talented of her sisters and said, Emily, I anoint you. Will you join me in this? in this quest, this medical mission that I have. And Emily, um, I think was intellectually hungry enough to, to, for that to appeal to her. And she said, okay, I'm in. HealthLink on Air will be right back with more from author Janice Nomura. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm speaking with author Janice Nomura, who's talking with me about her new biography, The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. Now, Elizabeth went to school at Geneva Medical College, which is now Upstate Medical University. Um, but where did her sister Emily attend? Well, interestingly, in the wake of Elizabeth's clear success at, at Geneva, um, male medical schools really got cold feet at this spectacle of a woman being incredibly successful in, in one of their schools. So in the wake of Elizabeth's graduation, you know, five years down the road when Emily came along, um, they shut their doors to her and said, no, no, we, we, we won't be accepting any more Blackwell sisters. One was enough. Um, so Emily had to struggle even harder to find a spot. Uh, she started at Rush University in Chicago, uh, medical school at that point was was two successive terms and two successive years. And after her first term at Rush, the trustees of Rush got cold feet and said, please don't come back. Uh, we really aren't comfortable with having you around. And she was determined and found her a way to finish up uh, at Cleveland Medical College, which is now Case Western. But they did well in school, right? Of course, they did very well. In fact, I mean, the old line about doing it but backwards and heels very much applied to them. Um, mm -hmm. They uh, they knew that in order to be taken seriously, they had to be excellent, and they were. Wow. Well, do you think uh, that they would be impressed at the progress women have made in society and in medicine, or do you think they would expect there should have been more progress by now? I think they would be gratified to know that you know more than half of medical students are women, for sure. Um, I think they would be... Uh, <laughs> Um, bemused and resigned at, at, at the, the struggles that women still have in the profession uh, and, and not surprised at all. How do you think they would feel about racial equality today? Again, I think they would be, um, they would sigh <laughs> with, with disappointment at how little progress we've made since their time and how much they recognize the struggles that we're still having. I mean, um, as I mentioned, they were ardent abolitionists um, and in fact, one of the first black female doctors was a resident doctor at, at the infirmary that they founded in New York. Um, so they, you know, certainly uh, understood that just the same in the same way that they were trying to prove something about what women could do. Um, there, there was equal prejudice against what blacks could do. Um, and, you know, we're still fighting that. Well, I wonder back in, in that day, how well known they were. were. Were there newspapers covering, you know, the first woman going to medical school? Or did this sort of, did they just go kind of under the radar for a while? How much were they known? They were known. Um, 
certainly around the time when they were studying, receiving their degrees, which was, you know, unprecedented and unheard of, um, there was plenty of press coverage. A lot of it was rather satirical, um, mocking. Um, the, you know, the London satiric newspaper Punch uh, wrote about each of them in turn um, with, with mockery. Um, there was also some admiring stuff. Um, the, the thing that it's important to remember about the 1850s, basically, when they were emerging, um, is that the, the term female physician was generally understood to mean abortionist, uh, a woman who was working in the shadows, in, in sin, on the wrong side of the law. So the phrase itself um, was sort of notorious. Uh, and that's what they had to combat, this idea that being a female physician was somehow um, notorious rather than just being a female version of a male physician. Um, there was certainly plenty of press coverage around the founding of their institutions in New York. Um, I'm not sure how far beyond the Northeast that um, that press coverage moved. I think there was some frustration on their part as they went along, especially on Elizabeth's part, um, that she wasn't better known in some ways, that, that people like Florence Nightingale were hugely globally famous. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell never achieved that kind of um, celebrity. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with author Janice Nemura, whose new biography, The Doctors Blackwell, tells the story of Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell. Now, together, the Blackwell sisters founded the first hospital staffed entirely by women in New York City. What can you tell us about how that project came together? Well, when Elizabeth finished her degree and her practical training, and when Emily did also, they struggled to find private patients. Most women who were wealthy enough to choose their doctors uh, didn't trust the idea, as I said, of a female physician. Um, so they really didn't have a lot of work. Um, what became clear was that in order to work, they were going to have to turn toward founding a charity, a charitable institution, and, and serve poor women um, who didn't have the means to be picky about the gender of their doctor um, and fund themselves with charitable donations from wealthier people who liked the idea of uh, a woman doctor serving the poor but didn't necessarily want to be consulting one themselves. So first, they uh, Elizabeth opened a, a tiny dispensary, one room, um, to serve the women of, of the Lower East Side, um, sort of in the German immigrant pop population largely. And then gradually that grew into the small hospital called the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children, which opened in 1857. Uh, and their purpose there was both to um, serve poor women with female doctors that they could consult about their you know, intimate illnesses, um, and also to be a place for the slowly growing numbers of female medical graduates to come for practical training, because even those women who were, who, were, who were slowly finding their way toward medical degrees, once they had them, they had nowhere to train because most hospitals still didn't want a woman doctor walking around. So on top of all of the medical, providing medical care, they, they had to come up with like the funding to start this too. Yes, they did. And they had a, a small but um, really passionate group of supporters in New York, um, many Quakers, people who had progressive ideas about, um, you know, about ideal social progress, um, really, who really believed that, like-minded people who believed that this was a good idea um, and, and they, could, they could promote it, um, again, some of them became Blackwell's, the Blackwell's patients. Many of them didn't. Many of them just supplied their money. Wow. Well, whatever happened to the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children? It survived. Uh, it, it, it morphed through many incarnations, as hospitals often do. Today, it um, persists as, uh, I guess, it, its DNA is still part of Downtown Hospital, which is part of New York Presbyterian, while Cornell um, but it persisted as the New York Infirmary for Women and Children for almost a century uh, on the Lower East Side. Interesting. Well, I want to ask you about um, how you came to write this book. How much time did it take um, for the research and the writing? Uh, I would say about four or five years altogether. And did you, how did you learn about the journal entries in the letters and how did you gain access to those? 
Well, um, most, the, the vast bulk of the Blackwell material is in two places, uh, at the Schlesinger Library for Women's History at Radcliffe in Cambridge and um, at the Library of Congress. Those are the two biggest uh, dumps of material. So th those were easy places to start. And then, you know, doing this kind of research is, is a lot of detective work. You sort of follow the breadcrumbs where they lead um, into different university collections, into sometimes into private collections, um, just picking them up as you go. So the letters themselves, um, are they written in, in pen, ink, <laughs> yes. on just paper? I mean, what are they like? Well, um, I'm always grateful to the, these collections that have digitized a lot of their holdings so that you can actually pull up the letters on your screen, which is a great gift to um, my weakening eyesight. Um, Victorian, you know, 19th century letter writers, when, when postage and paper were both fairly expensive, would do a lot of what's called cross writing. When you fill a page with closely written handwriting and then you turn it 90 degrees and write another whole page on top of the lines you've just written. Um, it, it takes a, a little bit of practice to, to actually decipher those kinds of pages, but I actually have take great delight in uh, in deciphering people's handwriting and really getting to know them. You, you can get a, 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 an extra sense of someone's personality when you become intimate with their handwriting. Um, and I, after a while, I think I think I was able to discern most of the siblings' different handwritings. Wow. Did you um, travel to Geneva or Syracuse for any of your research? Absolutely. Uh, Geneva is, is wonderful because South Main Street, where the medical college building was, uh, is still very much as it looked in the 1840s and 50s. So I had a wonderful feeling of time travel where I could go and stand on South Main, walk up and down, see the buildings that Elizabeth saw, um, see the lake, you know, right off, right, right beyond the, the, the boulevard there and really get a sense of, you know, how it felt to be there in 1847 uh, alone, um, trying to kind of dodge the stares of the townspeople and win the respect of your students and uh, your fellow students and your professors. Um, I was also blessed because when I when I stayed there, I, I, I made the acquaintance of several of the people who, who really treasure the Blackwell story in Geneva, one of them being um, the proprietor of the inn I was staying at was the retired director of the Geneva Historical Society. So that was a great wow. way in. <laughs> yeah. <great> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, can you describe your writing process? Are you Do you write in the daytime, the nighttime? Are you disciplined about when you write? How does, <laughs> how does it come together? I try. Um, uh, I, I, I generally, I think that the, the rule is that if you can just sit yourself down in the same place at the same time every day and do something, um, you eventually can make some progress. Um, I, uh, I, I balance my writing and research with my parenting and, and family cockpit work. Um, so like any other, like many other writers, um, but mostly uh, try to put my, a few hours together during the day when everybody else is off doing whatever they're doing. <laughs> now, how did you end up deciding to become a writer? I know you, you did have some interest in medicine at one point, but how did how did that turn into, I want to be a writer? Um, I, it was never a conscious choice. I was never that kid who had, you know, four unfinished novels under my bed or anything like that. Um, but I've always been a, a passionate and profound book, bookworm. And I think when you, when you read obsessively and and deeply the way I was always reading, um, you writing kind of becomes the natural way to express yourself. Um, and I've always loved stories of the past. And, and, and it was a revelation to me in college that history was just stories. It was just stories about people. Um, and I think the combination of being able to be a storyteller and kind of a detective in the archives um, became where I felt happiest in a way. Can you tell us about your first book, Daughters of the Samurai? Sure. Um, my, in college, I, I met a guy who had been born in Japan and we eventually married and moved to Japan for a few years. Came back When I came back, I did a master's degree in East Asian studies and Japanese history. And um, I became fascinated with the moment that Japan kind of um, or 
turned itself toward the West and started to be curious about Western ways, Western technologies, and, and vice versa, the way the moment when the West started to recognize that Japan was an interesting place to think about uh, in the, at the end of the 19th century. And then I stumbled onto this story of three little girls who had been sent by the Japanese government to America in the 1870s um, to spend 10 years here, uh, grow up American, and then come back and help with the project of modernizing Japan. It was kind of a crazy story seen through the lens of these three little girls. Um, and uh, it kind of captured my imagination and wouldn't let me go. And that became my first book. Well, let me ask you again about the, the Doctors Blackwell. Um, what, what do you want readers to take away from this book? Good question. You know, I think we're in a moment um, right now especially with the inauguration of our first female vice president coming up, um, where we're, I think it's a, it's a ripe moment for redefining heroin in our imaginations. I think um, the Blackwell story interested me because, you know, there's the sort of children's biography version of Elizabeth Blackwell, first woman doctor, but Elizabeth and Emily were very complicated people. Um, they were paradoxical people sometimes. They were the first women doctors, but they were out of step with the emerging women's movement in the 19th century. They didn't believe in women having the vote. Um, they, they often disagreed with some of the ideas that we think of as basic feminist principles. Um, they weren't always you know, adorable. They could be uh, cranky. They could be opinionated and, and formidable. And I love them for that because they made me feel, they made me uh, think of the people I know today, women who I admire, but who are, um, you know, uh, not uh, cartoon versions of heroin. Um, and I think it's a really ripe moment for all of us to think about um, how we admire female heroes uh, and, and to embrace people uh, with all of their contradictions and ambiguities intact and not just because they, uh, they suit some, some, some saintly legendary idea of how um, a hero is supposed to be. Well, thank you to Janice Namura. She's the author of The Doctor's Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What's medical school like today? We'll hear from two second-year students next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The first woman in America to receive a medical degree, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, was born on February 3rd, 1821. She graduated first in her class in 1849 from Geneva Medical College, which is the predecessor of what is known today as Upstate Medical University. So in 2021, Upstate is celebrating Dr. Blackwell's 200th birthday. With me to talk about what medical school is like for women today are two medical students, Nilima Doskayala and Saruthi Akula. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you for having us today. Happy to be here. So the Association of American Medical Colleges says women make up more than half of the enrollment at U.S. medical schools. Do you see that at Upstate? Saruthi? Yeah, I do. I think they said for the 2020 to 2021 year, they had more than 51% females enrolled. And I think our class does definitely reflect that. I've, at least from what I've noticed, it seems pretty equal. And Neelima, um, is that true? Do you have male and female professors as well? Yes, we definitely do. We have a good mix um, of both uh, women and men professors in our class. Now, Dr. Blackwell was a teacher before she became a physician, and from what I've read, apparently she didn't like the idea of studying the physical structure of the body and its various ailments. So let me ask each of you what draws you to medicine and how you knew this was something that you would enjoy making a career of. Saruthi? So, 
Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think my uh, favorite part of medicine is the detective aspect of it. Uh, like when you have a patient that comes in and they present with a problem, you're kind of working as a detective to see how you can help them uh, get better and get back to their everyday life and, and help them in that aspect. Um, and then I think I also like the aspect of medicine in that it's always evolving, right? You never know everything in medicine, uh, especially in a year like this where there's so much that's changing. I think you're, even as a physician, you're always learning. And uh, I really like that aspect of it. Well, Neelima, um, what about you? Have you, uh, can you tell me what drew you to this field? Sure. Um, like Shruti, I also enjoy um, helping people in a way that you are able to figure out what is wrong with them and, and what um, you can do to help them. But also, I think for me, um, medicine is more than just treating an illness or a disease. Uh, medicine involves treating a whole person. And sometimes it's not just about giving someone medicine to to make them feel better, but it's also about preventing um, them from getting sick. So that's a big part of why I chose medicine. Well, I know this is a very general question, but I wanna ask what medical school is like for you. And I guess we'll start with Saruthi. Is it as demanding as you thought it might be? Um, yeah, <laughs> so medical school is definitely a lot, but it's, normal when we have our shadowing and we're able to go into the hospital obviously this year like it's a little different but um i think that also gives you that that um like real world aspect of this is what i'm going to be doing so that's like the end goal um but i do think that there is time to do things you're interested in as well like you do have time for other things other than just studying all the time but you are studying a lot. Well, you mentioned shadowing. So is that where you're with a physician and kind of seeing what their workday is like? Yeah, exactly. So some rotations in the hospital where you're basically rotating with a um, team. So the team, you have a physician, um, residents, and then maybe like a, an upperclassman medical student. And so you get to see basically what a, a day in the hospital is like for them. But with this being the pandemic, that's changed substantially, right? Yeah, unfortunately, um, we weren't allowed in the hospital, especially during the uh, peak COVID time. Um, so there were other opportunities for us to get involved, though, uh, which was nice. And I think a lot of our classmates really rose up to the plate and uh, organized like different volunteering opportunities and uh, different virtual things that so we were still staying involved um, but in terms of shadowing until recently we weren't really allowed back in and now again with the upsurge we're uh, not really allowed in the hospital. Neelima let me ask you uh, how many hours do you spend in class and studying per week? Um, I think that really varies day to day. Um, we thankfully have the option of viewing our lectures online at our own time. So um, we're able to create our own schedules around, um, you know, our lectures and maybe our extracurricular activities. So um, I guess every day, if we have, you know, five lectures, that would be 45 minutes a lecture. So, you know, five lectures a day would be around five hours. And then reviewing those lectures would take another couple of hours. So it's pretty much a full work day. And then um, beyond that, we always have other study materials also because we're second years. So we have to prepare for the big um, end of year exam called STEP. So um, just a full day and you kind of just fit in breaks here and there. Do you have time for anything else like exercise or TV watching, is there much of that in the life of a medical student? Um, it's far and few, like in between. We definitely have to make time for things that we want to do. And um, I do think that if we, you know, if I plan out my um, time well enough, I do have time to relax and spend some time with friends or, you know, watch a show or exercise. Also, just 
I think stress relief is a big part of medical school because we're constantly running and we do have to make sure that we take time to de-stress and get back into things. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two medical students, Nilima Doskoyala and Saruthi Akula. Now, in Elizabeth Blackwell's day, medical school was two years, and so now it's four. But then what are your plans after the four years of medical school are over? Saruthi? Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure uh, which specialty I'll end up choosing, but um, as of right now, like you have your residency after medical school and then maybe fellowship as well. So uh, there's still a long journey ahead. Neelima, do you have any idea how many more years of education you'll face after graduation? Um, anywhere from three to seven, <laughs> depending on which specialty we choose. And I'm also not um, entirely sure which specialty I'll go into, but I do want to work with kids. Well, I've read that um, Elizabeth Blackwell graduated medical school in 1849, and she had a really hard time finding a job. And when she finally put out her own shingle, she had a really hard time getting patients because nobody wanted to see a female doctor. So I wanted to ask each of you about your plans after graduation and whether you think gender will affect those plans. So Ruthie? Um, I think personally, uh, the way gender has affected my plans after graduation is more in terms of uh, how I can balance my family life with my career as well. Um, and so that I think that definitely impacts the career I'll choose because there are some specialties like uh, surgery and, and things that are more um, time sensitive where, I mean, if you're on call, you have to go in, right? So I think uh, things like that will definitely affect what career I end up uh, choosing and what I end up going into. Do you uh, do you see your male medical student colleagues making similar considerations as they choose what they want to specialize in? Do do you hear them speaking about family obligations? Um, I can say personally, uh, especially like with my guy friends, I see them talking a little bit more about lifestyle. But I think a lot of them are interested in um, surgery and in specialties that are more time sensitive. So I haven't really heard them um, bring up like that, that family balance. Neelima, let me ask you, have you considered um, a career in surgery and how that might impact your personal life? Um, I have considered surgical specialties. And I think uh, a big reason that um, I'm a little bit hesitant about surgery is that the representation for women in surgical fields is um, sometimes less than 10%. And I feel like a big part of advancing in medicine is to be able to find a mentor in a field that you want to see yourself in. And um, I, you know, I look up to a lot of women that have made those strides in, in those fields. And I, you know, I hope that um, we will one day be able to guide other medical students who want to take the same path. Well, now I know that both of you are second year medical students. So you've completed your first year and half of your second year. Let me ask you, what's been your most memorable class so far? Saruthi? Uh, so that's a hard question because I've there have definitely been organ systems uh, that we've learned about that I think are very interesting. And, but I think overall, my favorite class has probably been anatomy. And uh, basically, we uh, learn the anatomy of each organ system as we learn it. And it's very hands-on and you can directly see, like if you have, uh, so, like some of our dissections that we did had, um, like knee replacements or joint replacements. And um, you can sometimes see uh, like the direct effects of people that had smoked and what that pathology of that looks like um, when you're dissecting. And so I think that was really interesting being able to see that 
um, firsthand in 3D. And I, I also think when uh, you're in the anatomy lab, you can see things 3D, which is very different than uh, when we're learning about it uh, through lectures or, or in textbooks, it's 2D. So I, I did like that 3D hands-on aspect. Those lessons seem like they're things that'll stay with you for your entire career. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think um, even now as we're learning about uh, some of the pathologies of systems, being able to go back and say, oh yeah, I remember seeing um, like this as we were dissecting through definitely helps. Neelima, what about you? Do you have a favorite? Um, I think that a lot of our courses have definitely been interesting. Um, I, I think besides our academic courses, um, our clinical skills and practice of medicine courses put um, medicine into context. And I feel like those courses are really, uh, really insightful in ways that will allow us to advocate for our patients and also um, just more experience-based learning. So I think that those are um, interesting courses. And the, your third and fourth years that are coming up, those are a little more hands-on, right? Yeah, uh, during our third and fourth year, we'll be uh, actually rotating through the hospital. Uh, so like I was mentioning earlier, the team, so we'll be part of those teams. Well, let me ask each of you, since we're celebrating or marking uh, Elizabeth Blackwell's 200th birthday, if you could speak to her today, um, what would you say to her? Has she been an inspiration to you? Yeah, if I could speak to her today, I would definitely thank her. If it wasn't for people like her and all the difficulties she went through, but still persisted, I don't think we would be here today. And if we were, we would definitely face more challenges than we do now. Um, I mean, now, like being a female in the field, I, I, for the most part, don't really feel any difference than my male colleagues. Neelima? Um, yeah, I think I would say the same. I would say the same. Um, I would thank her for allowing us the opportunity to do what we do today. And not only did she, um, was, not only was she a pioneer in what she did, but she also set up a foundation for other women to follow. And um, besides fighting for women, she also fought for racial inequity. And I think that we see a lot of the same parallels today. And I, you know, I thank her for starting the work and um, I hope that we will be able to continue it. Well, thank you to Neelima Doskayala and Saruthi Akula, medical students at Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Mimi Herman co-directs Rightaways in France, Italy, and New Mexico. She's also a Kennedy Center and North Carolina teaching artist. She gave us a poem that offers one answer to a question our medical students often ask, what makes a good doctor? Here is her poem, The Good Doctor. The magic of a miracle pediatrician is mostly memory, not only knowing which drug will halt a headache, which one will speed the course of flu, but also remembering all the relatives, grandma, and the Easter chick that grew to peck around the suburban backyard until she became November stew. But you know better than to mention that, recalling instead the stuffed, ear-chewed gray bunny who attended every previous visit but is absent today, and asking after the rabbit's health. The trick to being a good doctor, the one your patient's parents stop to thank every time you take your family out to eat, is the practice of the practical, a prescription pad pre-printed with grandma's cough remedy, whiskey, honey, and lemon juice, in the days before we stopped feeding even a little danger to our children, in the days when you knew these ingredients could be found in almost every home, even the ones who couldn't afford a trip to the druggist. The good doctor anticipates reactions, the knee-jerk reflex, the bee-swollen throat, 
the cringe from the needle's kiss, the rare erratic slope from fever to hospital, from automobile accident to grief, the ones he'll miss. Anne Rankin offers her answer to a similar question in her poem, How to Save Someone's Life. Her work has also appeared in The Sun and The Washington Post. How to Save Someone's Life for Brian Rankin. First, examine the eyes for the presence of trauma. Look for other signs the past has dealt a blow the victim cannot bear alone. Check for a pulse of intractable sorrow. You will find it thready, but possibly open to intervention. You'll find the shoulders hunched over. Gently square them parallel with the future. Resist the urge to turn away. Instead, first respond to the disaster yourself. Choose your tourniquet in the shape of the wound. Inject a few words of kindness and note if the other flinches. Touch the forearm to see if you can go further. You will meet resistance. Pain cascades like rain in a storm. You will need patience for the drowning. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what's important to know about retinal emergencies. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.